Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Julia Gillard, and you're listening to a podcast of one's own. First awarded in 2013, the Stella Prize is a major literary award celebrating Australian women's writing. Please go to stella.org.au to see the wonderful works long-listed and short-listed. You will find inspiration for your reading and book club for many months to come. But today I have the honour of speaking to this year's winner, Sarah Holland-Batt, who has authored a deeply personal collection of poems. Sarah's work, entitled Jaguar, canvases different dimensions of love, of loss, and of beauty. It particularly delves into her beloved father's long journey with Parkinson's disease. Her poems capture the grief Sarah and her family experienced. Reading it, I found so many echoes of my own experiences with the loss of my father and mother. The beauty of the words made me reflect anew on those years in the life of my family. There is tremendous light and shade in this work. Lines that make you smile, as well as ones that bring a tear to the eye. I can imagine myself being drawn back and rereading many of these poems over the years to come. Sarah, congratulations. Share with us where you were and how you felt when you found out that you'd won this year's Stella Prize. Thank you, Julia. It's so lovely to be here. I have such a mundane story in that I was walking to my car to go and run an errand. It's it's so unpoetic. <laughs> this news always sort of happens at the moment you least expect it. So I just had car keys in hand, walking down the street, intending to have a really sort of ordinary afternoon. And then I got the phone call and I, I genuinely couldn't believe it and still can't quite believe it. It's It's really that kind of life-changing news and of all the literary prizes in Australia and there are so many doing so many good things to win a prize you know founded to recognize women's writing is is particularly special and so it's still sinking in I mean I still I still feel like I haven't taken in the magnitude it's it's quite surreal a poet with an unpoetic experience I love that For those who haven't had the opportunity yet to read The Jaguar, can you give us a sense of what it's about? It's sort of a book that was about 20 years in the making and that my dad was diagnosed with Parkinson's when I was 18, a long time ago, and he had a sort of slow journey with it for probably 10 to 15 years. He was very intellectually active. He was a brilliant man and he kept his mind very active. And then, of course, eventually things caught up with him. And the last sort of five six, seven years of his life were really quite astonishing. There's no other word for it. I mean, I'd never really witnessed 
someone change in that way and, you know, his personality changed, the way he would speak, the things he would say, even his expressions, all of these things sort of shifted. And, and you know, when it's, as many people know, when, when it's a parent who's going through that sort of transfiguration, it's utterly surreal. This person you've known your whole life who's kind of shaped your world in a way becomes someone else. So the poem's sort of my attempt to, to grapple with that. And it's taken me a very long time, I think, to come round to see that this can be the subject material of art because for so long it was such a sort of painful experience. I've hardly told anyone. I mean, it's the sort of thing I think often people sort of slightly suffer in silence in the family kind of cone. And then with time and especially with dad's passing, I found there was sort of distance. And I also found something quite surreal that, that sort of returns in some of the poems in that after he died, he returned to me. You know, the person who had been replaced in a sense started to come back, you know, had flooded with memories of two versions of my father, the dad with Parkinson's and the dad before. And so I think the book, you know, tries to reconcile that layering of the person that I knew. On top of that, I suppose there's the living that goes on in the background of the dying. So there are poems that are sort of more from the perspective of my own life, but really it is it is a book about that transformation I watched Dad go through, which remains the most profound experience of, of my life, I think, and one that I'm still grappling with the ramifications of. 18 is very young to find out news like that. Can you tell us a bit about your family at that time, where you were, and how it felt to hear that diagnosis? I think that the impact of the diagnosis was was most upsetting for my mum, who had just lost her mother to Parkinson's disease only a couple of years beforehand. So she'd seen the whole trajectory and had that kind of heartbreak with her mum. And so to have her husband be diagnosed a couple of years later, you know, I think it was devastating. It was incredibly devastating on my dad because he was someone who prized his intellect. He, you know, prized the life of the mind. I grew up on the Gold Coast, but my dad was English and a huge reader. And so I grew up surrounded by this enormous library of books. They were his favorite possession. You'd never dog ear one of dad's books. He laminated the covers. You know, it was it was this sort of prized library. He was an engineer, but he had all of these intellectual hobbies. He composed music. He loved reading. He was obsessed with anything and anything that he could learn from a book. So to have a diagnosis of a neurodegenerative disease, I think it's devastating for anyone. But for someone like dad, it was sort of shattering. For someone of dad's generation, that kind of diagnosis, I think, is difficult because there's not those open channels of communication with friends that perhaps women women might have. And so dad, I think, really suffered enormous sort of pain and, and anger and upset with very few kind of outlets. And for me, of course, I was young. The family had just moved home. We'd been living in Colorado in America for my high school. We'd just moved continents. So there was a lot of sort of tectonic plates shifting all at once. And this just felt seismic, but I wasn't sure how. And, you know, it took, took some time, I think, for us all to process it. And probably these days, I mean, it's only 20 years ago, but I think these days the support around that kind of diagnosis has come a long way. There wasn't much communication. We each sort of took it in slightly separately and then had to move through, you know, the medicalization of dad, which is what happens when people go into the health system. You know, you get a diagnosis and then you become sort of part on a conveyor belt and there's not often much time to, to take in what it means. 
And on that medicalisation, there was a point when you needed to make a decision about your father going into an aged care facility to get the kind of support that he needed at that point. Can you talk to us about how your family made that decision? I mean, it's one that so many people have had the experience of needing to confront. I mean, I and my family uh, confronted that around our mother, particularly towards the end of her life. But for you, there was not only the pain that's associated with that decision, you ultimately became an advocate for better treatment of people in aged care. Can you share that experience with us? Yeah. So, I mean, like you say, it's it's an incredibly painful and difficult decision. No one wants to go into an aged care home. No one wants to put a loved one into an aged care home. And, and typically families hold out until things are at absolute breaking point. And that, that was basically the case. You know, mum really didn't want to put dad in an aged care home, but it was becoming too difficult for him to kind of navigate life in the family home. He needed a lot of help, physical help. And so we moved him into care and we did a lot of due diligence. You know, we visited a lot of homes, asked questions. There wasn't much information available about how to choose a good home. And, and frankly, we were probably quite naive about what to even ask or what to look for. So we picked a place that we thought seemed the best of the options, moved that in. And then unfortunately, you know, he just started experiencing issues almost immediately. He had Parkinson's, which means you need medication kind of on the dot at certain intervals across the day to give you a steady dose. And that wasn't being delivered. He'd have infections, minor things that just were sort of accumulating. And then in the end, a whistleblower came forward to my mother indicating that there was a, a carer that had been victimising dad deliberately and verbally kind of demeaning him. And I was totally incensed, as anyone would be, because dad was very mild in the aged care home. He was very kind of calm and sweet. And so to think of someone in that vulnerable state being mistreated, and when it's your father, it's just this, there's no worse feeling in the world. And naively, I sort of thought, oh, I can navigate the system. I'll get a good outcome here. This person shouldn't be working in aged care. This is the sort of person who needs to be excluded from the system entirely. And sort of went through the channels as you do. I went to the police. I went to the ombudsman. You know, you do a lot of reading online. You do a lot of speaking to people and just sitting on hold on the phone. And at the end of it, there was no satisfactory outcome. I felt an onus, actually, an obligation to contribute when the Royal Commission into aged care quality and safety was called. I thought uh, the principle is very important that even though this terrible thing had happened to my dad, it was important that the system be approved. Through that work, I mean, it's it's not something that anyone sort of seeks out to do, I think, particularly to become an advocate. There've been quite surreal moments where I've had like the 7.30 crew in my living room about to go, you know, to an interview with Lee Sales on aged care where you just think, what, what on earth am I doing? I'm a poet. But, you know, it's been quite galvanising. The emails that I've had from people, the correspondence from the public, I think aged care is still a, still a topic that a lot of people prefer not to think about until they absolutely have to. And that's no way to fix the system because people are at the point of strain when they're putting loved ones in. And so for me, yet dad has passed away. He had a very good palliation, a very good death in the hospital system, for which I'm immensely grateful. But I still think that the principle is important. And I sort of have done a lot of that work subsequent to dad's death in his memory, because 
you know, I keep hearing these stories and I think we are a prosperous nation. We have a lot of resources. We have the capacity to have a world-class aged care system, just like we have world-class other aspects of a healthcare system. And so I think we really need to do a lot culturally to address the ageism that underlies it. That's sort of been, I suppose, my motivating force in, in doing this, but it has at times seemed an odd fit with the rest of my writing life and, and the work that I do. In all of that, I mean, such a long and painful journey, what, what were your support systems? I mean, obviously you have your mother, are there other family members, people that you've relied on? I mean, to do all of the things you were doing for your family, as well as that advocacy, as well as continuing your stellar poetry writing career, it's a lot. Look, there were times, I'm not going to lie, where it felt like too much, but I was really energised by the issue. I mean, when, you, when you're passionate, and you would know this, I mean, there's no, there's no job more taxing than federal politics or the prime ministership. I was not as busy as you would have been, I think it's fair to say. But, you know, when you're energised about a subject, when you're passionate about it, when you think there is the capacity to make meaningful change, you know, and aged care is a subject where there's so much scope for so much improvement across so many domains of the way it's delivered, the way people access it, the right to information, the right to appeal, safety. I felt very energised by it. But to your question, I've always been so lucky to have such a great group of female friends. And, you know, the power of female friendship has has really sustained me, I think, through it. It was tricky in that a lot of that advocacy work was during the pandemic. So there wasn't enormous capacity to kind of have a glass of wine with friends or, you know, but there were a lot of Zooms, there were a lot of chats on the phone. I have a very small nuclear family. It's just mum and I, I'm an only child. And we have some relatives, but not an enormous number. But I would say friends have really been such an incredible support. And those little messages that you get where people say, oh, I heard you on the radio or, you know, great job or well done. It does sort of push you forward, even when you feel like you're pushing against, in the case of aged care, kind of a mountain in a way. I want to take you now to some of the beautiful poetry. One of your poems, it's entitled Tijuana, says, His mood shifts turn apocalyptic. The curses when they come arrive as darts tipped with electric blue venom, so sharp it brings paralysis. I think many of us can relate to this experience because ageing and disease does make parents who have been a sort of constancy in our lives unpredictable, even unknowable. How did that feel for you? You've captured that kind of moment just exquisitely. Oh, thank you. And, you know, those moments come out of nowhere because you could be having quite a nice cup of tea and then all of a sudden, you know, Dad would say things that just shocked me that just weren't him. I think in my father's case, because Dad had been, he'd been such a good father, you know, he was he was an incredible, mild, retiring Englishman, incredibly soft-spoken, incredibly supportive of me as a child, great intellectual mentor. I think for me, in that sense, it was quite easy to separate out and say to myself, this is the illness, this is not my father speaking. I think for mum, some of those moments were a little a little tougher to navigate. But, you know, I had such a sort of positive view of my father growing up. I think in the cases where there are more tensions in a family, those moments can be much more fractious. But, you know, I would just sort of say to myself, well, that's the Parkinson's, you know, and I, and I know, I know for a fact that that's, that's what those sort of moments were, but he could be, he could be unkind. And sadly, sometimes with these things like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, 
they can cause people to say the, the precise wrong thing that will prod you in exactly the wrong spot. You know, and sometimes that would happen with dad as well. But I think you just have to sort of roll with it and accept that, that that's sort of part of the rhythm of the disease, that there are going to be these moments where it's where the behaviour is very challenging. And to be honest, you know, Parkinson's is an illness where most people associate it with the motor symptoms, with not being able to walk very well, with having a tremor. For dad, I would say overwhelmingly the personality changes were much more challenging than helping him with mobility issues or helping him with physical issues. I hope that some of the work that I've done and some of the poems and things that I've written open that territory up for people to speak about a little bit because it can be the most challenging aspect of these illnesses and yet the public face of the disease is that it's about not being able to walk very well, you know, having a tremor and so forth. You capture so well, too, the eccentricities of behaviour. There's one passage about your father announcing one day grandly that you're all going on a first-class ticket holiday to Brazil, and the Jaguar of the title is not a big cat, but a car that your father insisted on buying and driving, even though he shouldn't have been driving at that stage. I mean, that's a roller coaster too, isn't it? Perhaps more benign than what you deal with in the poem Tijuana, but still a roller coaster. Oh, look, the car thing was just hilarious. Well, it is now in retrospect, it's hilarious. It was it was the opposite of hilarious at the time. But, you know, mum was just at home and all of a sudden a semi-trailer rolled up and there was a vintage Jaguar being delivered on the driveway that my father, who was, you know, had Parkinson's disease, wasn't making sound decisions, but was still perfectly capable of using the internet, buying something on eBay, inputting credit card details, bought a vintage Jaguar car on eBay. And he was the only bidder on the auction because it's an absolutely insane thing to do, to buy a car off eBay. And it was just around the time that the doctor was saying, now, Tony, you know, it might be time to consider giving up your license. Dad's response to that was was to dig in about as hard as you possibly can by buying a, a car that he'd always wanted. At some point of distance, these things actually become funny. At the time, it was totally alarming because we'd been having these considered dinner table conversations about, now, Dad, you know, you might like to think about because he loved cars. You're right. It's it's those eccentricities of behaviour and, and they really are a wave that you need to learn to ride, I suppose. And you can't always respond perfectly in the moment. There were times when both mum and I were frustrated with him, but you also have to have compassion for what's happening in the mind that's that's producing those decisions. And with time, I've come to see that act as dad kind of insisting, you know, on the things in his life that, that he loved, which included hopping behind the wheel. In your poem, Terminal Lucidity, you write, after 20 years away, an intercession of clarity in your final hours. Surfacing from a morphine surge, suddenly you were there again, your eyes lighting on my face, gold-panned hazel, alive with the old intelligence. I think that memory will chime with the recollections of so many too when, strangely, in the grips of an illness that is going to take a loved one out to the end, there is this moment of complete clarity and they're shockingly back to their old selves. Can you tell us about that moment for you? It happened in hospital as dad was dying and often in as people are dying, they're taken off all their other medications. And so the palliative care team that were looking after dad took him off all of, you know, he was on a range of things. They take you off all of that and they slowly kind of step up the morphine. 
And it's a phenomenon that, you know, it's not not necessarily fully acknowledged by doctors, but it has been documented over centuries, this, this idea of terminal lucidity, which is the idea that people often, even with long psychiatric illnesses, even with neurodegenerative illnesses, in the final days, hours, minutes of their life, have moments of lucidity, of, of kind of seeming to be their old self. It took dad, I think, about five days in total to die in hospital. And, you know, as they were stepping up the morphine, there'd be, there'd be periods where we'd have slightly surreal conversations. But then there were these moments where, you know, I really felt the dad of 20 years ago was present. And I think of that as such a gift. You know, it was like a last visitation of the man that I loved through my childhood. And so beautiful to, to sort of have that memory through his passing it did make his death in the end more poignant and more difficult because it's almost like you just get that those little glimpses of the person that you that you knew just as they're being taken away it, it allowed me to i suppose reaccess the memory of the man that he was which in a way had been slightly eroded by you know parkinson's and those changes and personality shifts so i i think of those moments as a total gift your mother is a strong presence in so many of your poems. She's woven throughout this narrative. Can you tell us a bit about her? Mum is a was a school teacher. She she is now retired, and she and my dad had such a happy marriage, which which is astonishing, really, because they agreed to get married after dad had met mum for about a week and a half. He had come to Australia. He had some of his PhD students in mining. He brought them to Mount Isa. Mum happened to be in Mount Isa visiting a school teaching friend. They went to a couple of picnics. Dad asked her to marry him about, you know, eight times in three weeks. Eventually, worn down by that, she said yes, and then moved to England, you know, to, to sort of marry him and, and live with him, this, this almost perfect stranger. It is such a miracle that they had the happy marriage that they did. It's it's an absolute recipe for disaster. But mum was an incredible carer for dad, I have to say, an incredible advocate for him. And she and I, I feel it's always a sort of negotiation of, you know, sometimes one person has more energy than the other. Sometimes one person has more capacity to be patient than the other. And I feel that mum and I together, we're, we're a pretty amazing team through those difficult years. And I, I admire her enormously. You know, she would she would visit dad almost every day in his aged care home. She would sit with him, speak to him, do things to brighten his day, bring in the food he loved, you know, bring in the music he loved, bring in books on audio tape when he couldn't read anymore. It was really astonishing to watch that care. I mean, that's that's sort of part of my interest in, in improving aged care because there are things we can do every day to make the life of someone like my father in a state of great vulnerability, in a state of, you know, physical and mental mental decline. There are still good days. There's still the possibility to bring happiness and joy and well-being to someone in that state. And so mum is an amazing woman, someone who took a punt on a man she'd known for a couple of weeks and they ended up being married for 50 years. It's a great innings. It is a great innings. You deal in your poems with other things that are happening in your life. While so much of this is about your father and what we've been discussing, there are other experiences are recorded in your poems. And I want to take you to one now, which is entitled The Proposal, in which you turn down a marriage proposal. You write, you're so hard, he told me. He said it like an indictment, as if presenting proof of something I did not know. But I already knew, and I did not rise to object. 
because I praise what it is in me that is stony and unbending. I praise my hardness to it and it alone, I say, I do. They're amazingly powerful words. I mean, wow. Can you tell us about how you view yourself, your strength, your character? I've always been an insufferably stubborn person, I think. And you can ask my mum about that. I'm sure she'll tell you a long laundry list of, of the ways in which, uh, you know, I, I was an exhausting child and probably an exhausting adult in that when I have a mind for something, I will pursue it. No one else will make up my own mind. I've always been like that. I've always been independent. It's probably, probably a factor of being an only child, reading a lot of books. And again, having a father who encouraged that sort of streak of independence in me. You know, and I was lucky enough to have the life-changing experience of moving to another country when I was 12, living there until I was 18 in the States. You know, I've had the opportunity for a lot of travel, a lot of movement in my life and done a lot of that independently. And I think it's both made me hard, possibly in the pejorative sense, but also I think there is a strength that can come from independence. And in that same way, I feel like the experiences with dad, with his Parkinson's, with advocacy, they were challenging, but I think these things, they are something you can look back on when you have further challenges in your life and think, oh, well, if I've been through that, if I've done that, you know, I, I, I can do the next thing. And so I do draw strength, I think, from those challenging times. I mean, part of the phrasing of that poem is thinking about the gendered ways in which we think of strength, hardness, resolve. I think that those qualities are praised in men and then women who exhibit them, and you would know this better than most, you know, often are punished for them or they're seen to be a negative. And so it is also a way of reclaiming that concept of the strength of independence, the strength of resolve. No, you're so right about that. And I think we do view those characteristics about strength so differently. And I think we should claim and be proud of being resilient, hard, tough, having that inner core. I don't think it's something that we should shy away from. And I read and reread those lines. They really very much spoke to me. Another thing that spoke to me from your poems is your sense of landscape. You know, you talk in many of the poems about the United States, about its cities and its landscapes. You talk about Australia's natural environment. And really one of the roles that poetry has played for centuries and centuries is it's got us to stop and to look at the natural world anew, to take the time instead of just rushing past it, to take a moment and to, to drink it in. Are you conscious of that as you move from place to place and then write about those places? Absolutely. And I think probably actually I am a writer because I moved from place to place. I would say I started writing poetry in high school when I moved from the Gold Coast to Colorado, which is about as far away as you can get. You know, I've moved to a mountain landscape where there was no ocean. I remember across the road from the first house that we lived in, there was a lovely couple and the woman, Brenda, had never seen the ocean and she was in her 70s. She'd never, ever seen the ocean. And I remember leaving that conversation absolutely gobsmacked at the different kind of landscapes that people dwell in and how, how they shape actually our behaviour, who we are, what we think, what we love. I found Colorado actually initially quite an alienating, it's, it's such a beautiful state, but initially I found myself longing for the water, I found myself longing for the warmth, you know, it's 
freezing. We moved at a time where there was an historic blizzard, so it was totally alien to me. I think that sort of prompted in many ways that the sort of the sense of change in the self that comes from living in another country, but also visually the kind of sense of being somewhere else has has always fascinated me in poetry. And then on top of that, you get the kind of different languages that come out of those landscapes, you know. So some of these poems are set in Yorkshire, which is where, you know, dad is from. And all that beautiful sort of lingo that the Yorkshire men use makes its way into the poem. So I'm fascinated, I think, not only by landscape as something of beauty and thresh and and everything in between, but also the relationship between landscape and language and how the landscape itself can kind of shape the way that we speak, the rhythms, the patterns and, and the words we use. And so that's always been something that's that's driven, I think, my poetry from the start. And you can see that. You've described that so well. That's actually made me think afresh about some of the lines that I read. I will go and reread them. And Colorado, I've had the opportunity to hike there in summertime. It is incredibly oh, beautiful. isn't it? Very different. Now, tell me about the process of writing poetry. I think for most people, the thought that you would be at a desk with a blank sheet of paper and someone said, write a poem, <laughs> it would be a few more challenging, terrifying moments in life than that. People would be volunteering, you know, can't. Can I go outside and dig a ditch, you know, just anything, <laughs> as long as I don't have to be here with this blank piece of paper? How do you do it? Oh, look, I mean, it is often painful, I have to say. It's not necessarily much easier for poets. The thing is we just stay and, and keep working at it. But it it tends to start for me with an image that I can't get out of my mind, a little moment. I take a long time to write the poem. So something will happen. Maybe two years later, I'll work out what the poem is in it because I think experience itself, it's powerful for the person who feels it, but the poem has to be a vehicle for a reader to enter into that experience. And so for me, that takes a little bit of time to sort of translate what the kind of angle into what the entryway, what the door is from my personal experience to something that might resonate for the reader. Before I sort of committed to a life of writing, I studied classical music for a long time. And for me, that sense of the poem as a, as a musical composition is quite strong. So I'm not really, I don't get going on a poem until I've got a sort of rhythm of a line or a sense of a line. It often doesn't end up being the first line of the poem because you do multiple drafts and you kind of inevitably ditch the first thing you write. But it's sort of thinking through the rhythm of thought of where this poem's going to go. And then I think, you know, writing a poem, you've got to leave it totally open because the best poems, I think, move in unexpected ways. And so if you if you have a plan of this is going to be the poem and this is going to be the message, the poem, in a sense, has nowhere to go. And so I tend to let language unfold and, and focus on, on the sort of the sounds of the language, also what I'm saying, but moving in te- those two things in tension so that it hangs together as a poem. So it's sort of a process of that you do by feel. It's not something you can sort of plot out or plan or and then just execute. But for me, it starts with, with some experience or image or just moment in time that I think, oh, there's a poem in that. And then I sort of file it away, sometimes even forget about it for a couple of years, and then it will just come back with the right entry point, I think. And when did you first realise you could do this? What made you think, okay, I'm going to try and write poetry? 
well, I thought I could do it before I could do it, as, as is the case with most poets. I thought I was writing poetry in high school. Uh, looking, looking back on those poems, they're not very good and they're, you know, they're imitations. And I think it's the same way that artists paint. You start out imitating the old masters. I started out imitating the poets that I loved. You know, you learn to do what they do. And then in time, you start to sort of, I think, find your own angle into writing, work out what you're good at. So for me, like I think for anyone, there's no sort of precise moment where you think, oh, great, that's it, that's the poem. But I do remember writing one of the poems for my first book and having a sense, perhaps for the first time, that that poem is complete and that it couldn't be said in any other way. And I think that's kind of ultimately what you're working for in that you've got this looseness of language and things coming together, coalescing but then you want the final poem to feel quite fixed as though this is the precise you know, set of language in the precise order and that that's the finished poem. And how much of this can be taught? You do try and teach it, don't you? I try. I try. Look, I think people have a fear of poetry that is based on having almost no contact with it whatsoever. So I have a theory that poetry has a PR problem, but that when people actually read it, you know, they actually enjoy it and like it. They can read it. There's no sort of specialist experience that's required to open a book and have a go at reading a poem. And I think the main thing that's required is actually slow attention. The poem asks you to slow down in a way that other forms of reading, you know, we're totally acclimatised to scrolling endlessly on our phone, you know, reading documents in a glance, that kind of thing. And so poetry inherently can't be read like that. So I think the first thing to teach people to read poetry is just to say, slow down, read it a few times, read it out loud, let it sit, return to it. You know, it's a slow meditative form of reading, you know, where your mind can can read a line your mind will wander off because there's a metaphor or a simile or some some beautiful image that you're stuck on. And then you kind of slowly interpret the poem. And then there's, of course, all of the history of poetry that can be learned. You know, you can learn about poetic forms like the sonnet, the haiku and so forth. You can learn about the history of poetic movements and aesthetics like any other form of art. But I tend to think that people will get a lot of enjoyment just from approaching a poem with an open mind, taking the time and finding what they enjoy in it. And, and not feeling as though there's a single correct interpretation or a single way to read a poem. I think you are single-handedly fixing the PR problem of poetry. <laughs> Thank you, Thank Sarah. You. <laughs> I'm going to come now to the questions that we regularly put to my interviewees towards the end of the podcast. I always ask people about a fact and your fact is going to relate to the Stella Prize. One thing that Stella does is the Stella Count, which examines gender bias in Australian book reviewing. And it found women authors received equal attention for the first time in the Stella Count history. So that is important because, you know, many people rely on the book reviews to give them a hint about what they're going to read next. And so if you're not getting equal reviewing time, you won't be getting the the buying audience, the supporting audience. What difference do you think all of that does make for a work like Jaguar? And are you surprised that it's taken us this long to get to equal attention? It is surprising because so many readers are women. The overwhelming majority of book buyers are women. The audience for books is mostly women. Certainly for fiction, it's overwhelmingly women who buy novels. And so this concept that the critical language, that the reviewing culture that has surrounded these books 
you know, has been dominated by men for, for such a long time is a serious cause for concern. I think it's really a testament to, to the influence that the Stella has had and this count that has, you know, in, in some in some cases probably drawn attention to some deliberate bias, in other cases drawn attention to just unconscious bias or unconscious practice or just, in my experience, I've acted as a poetry editor, I've acted, I've edited a few things. Often I've found, and this is purely anecdotally, but men, when they get a rejection, will immediately resubmit. Women, when they get a rejection on occasion, will just not resubmit. Even when you say, look, I you know, enjoyed these, couldn't quite place any of them, love to see some more of your work. So I think it's a complex kind of factor about whose voices are sort of published as critics. But nonetheless, it's it's really important that women's books, women's literature receives, you know, equal coverage and that the public who who do look at the reviews pages have that opportunity to see important work by women. So I think it's a fantastic outcome. I always ask my guests what's the worst misogyny that they've ever faced. And so, Sarah, I'm going to ask you that, but I'm seriously hoping that there's not misogyny in poetry. Am I wrong about that? Oh, Julia, the, the Australian poet John Forbes once described Australian poetry as a knife fight in a phone booth. It has been at, at times really intense and combative. And I think for me, when you ask me this question, the thing that that you know comes to my mind is the sort of professional resentment in various forms that I've had from men who feel that they've been slighted if their work has been rejected, who feel that they should have had an opportunity that's, you know, where I have been appointed to do something. I know I'm not alone in this. I've had conversations with other female editors and leaders in the arts about this phenomenon. And it sort of escalated a lot when I was writing my column on poetry for the paper in that you know, you get a lot of unsolicited sort of correspondence, some of it quite alarming. I got a handwritten sheaf of erotic poems from Long Bay Penitentiary, which, which was a little bit alarming. You get a whole lot of sort of strange stuff the second that you stick your head above the parapet. But I would say the more disturbing instances have just been a kind of sort of harassment from from men who feel that to be rejected is somehow a personal slight. You know, writers are supposed to accept, and the majority, I must say, do. The majority of men do in literature understand that rejection is part and parcel of the game, that opportunities come round, that, you know, there's movement in the, in the sort of scheme of prizes and things that opportunities that people are awarded. But there have been a few instances of really, really unpleasant behaviour, both online and in person, that I can only put down to the fact that I was younger than the individuals and that I was female. And it felt incredibly aggressive and designed to intimidate. But, you know, I think as a point of principle, the people who behave that way, all they want is attention. All they want is any reaction, negative or positive. And so I just sort of effectively refused to give any any response at all because I think, you know, there's the option to blow your lid and harangue back, but I don't think that that, that sort of dignifying that behaviour in a way. And so my personal kind of response to it has always been to completely ignore it entirely. I was hoping poetry would be a more refined world, but sadly <laughs> not. If you had all of the power in your hands for one moment and you could change one thing for women, what would it be? That's that's a really tough question. Aside from the obvious things, like obviously access to education, safety, security, I think the thing that I would I would like to change is the valuing 
of the caregiving that women do across all ages, across all stages of life. I don't know, I'm now 40, I don't know a single woman in my professional life who isn't caring for children and or elderly parents and potentially a spouse and others in the family. Um, This work, I think we're expected to sustain the illusion that it doesn't take up any time. We're supposed to continue our professional activity as though we're not doing this work. It is work that is overwhelmingly, predominantly done by women. You know, it's fantastic that men now do some share of the caregiving, and I don't want to suggest that they don't. But I think underneath, you know, our, our society, our social fabric would collapse without the unpaid labour of women doing care in the context of aged care, which is obviously the area that I'm most famil- familiar with. Family members, unpaid carers contribute 25% of the workforce in aged care. It's people going into homes, doing the care, supplementing the care. That's overwhelmingly women. And I think we don't necessarily have an amazing sort of capacity to speak about the value of this labour in in our society either. I think it's sort of expected to be performed for free without complaint. And I'd love to see that changed. I'd love to see it acknowledged as the important and profound work that it is. Absolutely. My final question. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. I'm going to quote Virginia Woolf because, of course, we've named the podcast for Virginia Woolf. Virginia Woolf says... What is praise and fame to do with poetry? Was not writing poetry a secret transaction, a voice answering a voice, so that all this chatter and praise and blame and meeting people who admired one and meeting people who did not admire one was as ill-suited as could be to the thing itself, a voice answering a voice? Sarah says, I think that is so profound. And I think it speaks to so much of what I value in poetry, which is that poetry is a long conversation. You can write a poem now in conversation with the ancient Greeks. It is a continuity of language across culture, across time. And I think the thing that that I feel so glad about is that poetry sits almost entirely outside of conversations about economic rationalism, about utility, about use. You know, it is it is meaningful and powerful and important in our culture and in our lives precisely because of that, because it is just the human voice in its purest form, paying the closest attention to where we all live, which is language. You know, we live in language that that is the medium we use all day, every day. And poetry is a sort of distillation of that, but it also speaks across time. So I mean, beautiful words from Virginia Woolf and what an incredible woman she was. Sarah, congratulations once again on winning the Stella Prize. I'm going to urge listeners to go out and get a copy of Jaguar, but also please do check the Stella website and see all of the incredible women 
whose works were long-listed and short-listed, so many things to choose from. It'll keep you reading and enjoying for a long period of time to come until the next stellar prize rolls around. Congratulations, Sarah, and thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you so much, Julia. A podcast of one's own is created by the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London and our sister institute at the Australian National University, Canberra. Earnings from the podcast go back into funding for the institutes, furthering the work we do to create a world in which being a woman is no barrier to being a leader. Research and production for this podcast is by Rebecca Shepherd and Connie Blafari, with editing by Nick Hilton. If you have feedback or ideas of who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, go to kcl.ac.uk forward slash G-I-W-L and sign up to our updates or follow us on social media at G-I-W-L Kings. Thanks for listening and we hope you join us next time.